Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Paul writes, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So we're continuing our series looking at the cross something that is right at the heart of our faith. And we're spending this time during Lent on Sundays looking at different facets of the cross. The cross, something which is very familiar to many of us, but if we're honest, it's often quite misunderstood. I've shared uh, this story with some of you before, but um, a few years ago, um, I was leading one of the Alpha courses and uh, that's a course that's designed to help people discover uh, Christianity and to ask questions and to give them a chance to ask questions about life and death and faith. And uh, it's a great course. And over 26 million people around the world now have done the Alpha course. Uh, but on one of these courses, one of the people who uh, was on it um, decided that she wanted to be a Christian. She wanted to commit her life fully to Christ, and uh, she uh, was in her mid-40s. She hadn't been a Christian up until this point, and she decided that she wanted to tell other people, to show other people what her newfound faith meant to her. So she went into a jeweler's shop. And she explained what had happened, that she'd become a Christian, and she wanted a necklace with a cross round it. And the next week, she told me what happened next. The shop assistant looked at her and said, do you want one with the diver on or the diver off? And she looked at the woman and said, diver? She said, yes, you can get one with the diver on or a plain one with the diver off. She explained that it wasn't just a diver, but actually it was Jesus who was on the cross. Now, the cross is central to our faith, but if we're honest, it is also a mystery. Because how is it that the death of one person 2,000 years ago, Christians believe, affects who we are today, affects our relationship with God today? There were thousands of Roman prisoners who during the empire were crucified on a cross. Thousands of them. And yet we remember just one of them. We remember this carpenter, this, he wasn't just a carpenter, he wasn't a chippy, he was a sort of master craftsman. That's the word, that's what it actually means. We remember the death of this one master craftsman from Nazareth. In Galilee, 2,000 years later, we're in this building. 
Most churches are in the shape of a cross. People wear a cross around their neck, some with the diver on, some with the diver off. How is this so important? It's a mystery, and if we're honest, our ways of explaining it are simply that, our ways of explaining it. There are several pictures, several motifs, several images in the New Testament as to what the cross means. And the words that we have to try and explain the cross are simply that. They're our best attempt to try and explain, to try and understand this mystery at the heart of our faith. There are these different metaphors, different motifs, different descriptions. There are images from uh, the temple, the law court, the marketplace, and the home, and three of them feature in those five verses that I read a few moments ago. There's the picture of the law court and the idea that God is the judge. We are in the dock. And yet somehow we are pronounced, even though we're guilty, at the end we're pronounced innocent. The death sentence, the punishment that should have been ours, somehow is taken on by the judge himself. Again, the illustrations that we have, and people like me who earn a living by doing this, try and just uh, breeze through that, we'll, have, we'll tell pictures and stories of, of a judge coming out of, of the bench and joining the prisoner in the dock and standing in the dock alongside the prisoner and taking the punishment on themselves. That's quite clean. That's quite forensic. It was a bit more bloody than that. It was costly. For the judge to do that. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's as though the judge in between the bench and the dock is beaten, is whipped, is scourged so badly that his friends can't recognize him almost. His clothes are, are stripped off him. Imagine a high court judge Imagine a high court judge with clothes ripped off them, beaten repeatedly, whipped within an inch literally of his life, and then standing in the dock. It's costly, not just in terms of reputation, but also in physical pain. We are justified. Then there's the second picture in verse 24, that of the marketplace of something being redeemed, of something being bought back. Not in a farmer's market underneath Edinburgh Castle, but actually in a slave market. Somebody being bought out of slavery. Somebody who's fallen into debt, that debt being paid for. Maybe a piece of property, maybe a, a family member indeed who is, has fallen into debt, being bought back. An animal being bought back. A house being bought back. Even a widow being bought back. That's the picture that we'll look at in a minute of redemption. And then there's the third picture in verse 25 of the temple. Atonement. The idea of sacrifice. The idea of 
a sacrifice being given for sin, atonement being made through the death on the cross. It's a picture of a temple. It's a picture of a ritual. It's a, peer, it's a picture of a sacrifice being laid out on an altar. But it's not an animal. It's not a lamb. It's not a goat. It's not a sheep. It's not a pigeon. It's a person. The Son of God is sacrificed for your sin and for my sin, for the sins of the whole world. This passage that I read a few moments ago in Romans chapter 3 is described by one theologian as possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. No pressure on the preacher then. The reformer Martin Luther wrote these words next to this passage in his Bible, the very center of the epistle and indeed of the whole Bible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing truth that is contained within these words. That we who are far off can be brought near. That we who were enemies can be reconciled and called your friends and called your family. And we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would come and apply your word to our hearts. That this won't simply remain intellectual knowledge but it would move from our head to our hearts that we might know how deeply we are forgiven, how deeply we are loved. In Jesus' name, amen. So of those three pictures, we're going to focus on one, and the picture is of redemption. It's a big technical term in Scripture. Redemption is one of the great themes of the Bible. It's there throughout the Old Testament. It's there throughout the New Testament. It's there in great art and literature and films. Uh, it's a still picture from the Shawshank Redemption, voted the best film ever. Discuss. But it tells the story of the guy in prison who re is redeemed during the course of his life. It's there in films like Groundhog Day or Toy Story, from Gran Torino to Hackshaw Ridge. The theme of redemption occurs again and again and again. And now here in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul has been describing the state of the world. This is a letter written to a church in Rome, probably a, a church that was full of Jewish people. Somebody said that you can't actually understand the book of Romans unless you appreciate that the people that Paul is writing to come from a Jewish background. And what Paul has been doing up until these, this particular verse in chapter 3 and verse 21, as we call it, he's been trying to describe the state of the world. So if you go flip back to Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 and the first half of Romans chapter 3, what the Apostle Paul is doing is saying, everybody has made this world a mess. The Jewish people and the Gentiles. There's, there's no description. That verse, Romans 3 verse 23, that is often used, the second half of it, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you look at the context, what comes just before it is that Paul writes, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
He's saying there's no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. Everybody, all of us, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Jews have failed to live up to their calling as the covenant people of God. The Gentiles have failed to recognize the image of God in everything around them, in creation itself. And the world that we now see around us, Paul says, is the result. Now, normally, in this sort of talk, at this sort of point, someone like me would normally try and convince you of the reality of sin. We try and prove to you from different incidents in the news or illustrations or pictures or, or, or that sin is a reality, that this world is not the way it's meant to be, that this world is a mess, that this world is still looking for truth, that this world is searching for hope, that this world is looking for direction. The reality is, if we're honest, I don't need to prove that to you this morning. I can't think of a time, certainly in my lifetime, when it has been so patently obvious that this world is without hope, that this world is without direction, that this world is looking for truth that this world indeed is looking for reconciliation. You see, what Paul says in Romans chapters 1, 2, and the first half of 3 is that sin has destroyed people. And that sin, our failure to live life the way God wants us to live, our rebellion against how God wants us to live and to think and to speak, that has affected not just simply us as individuals, but it's affected our society. It's affected our culture. It's affected our politics. It's affected our economics. It's affected our environment. The very created order itself is affected. Incredibly moving at the nine o'clock service, The person who is leading the congregation in prayer just broke down. As she was praying for the world and praying for our nation, she was just suddenly overcome with emotion. She was horrified afterwards. And I said, no, because it was authentic. It's real. That's That's how many of us feel. We watch the news. We watch the bulletins. We listen to the newscasts. We, we see the slogans going across the bottom of our TV screens. And perhaps there's never been a time in the history of our nation when the fact that we are clueless and hopeless and directionless, it's not really up for dispute, is it? Because many of us this morning feel bewildered. Bewildered. And if we're honest, we couldn't do a better job. We think we could. And we may think we might. But really? Again, we may think, well, I wouldn't start from here, but that's a whole different discussion. 
But the reality of sin is patently obvious. Our society is directionless. Our culture is hopeless. And whether it's economics or politics, the environment, culture, individually and corporately, we see the world around us looking for direction, looking for hope. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and the first half of chapter 3. He says, look around you, look at the world that we live in. And it's not the world as it was meant to be. The image of the glory of God is marred, damaged, hidden, blurred, and sometimes almost erased. That's what he's saying in Romans chapter 1 verse 1 through to Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. But Paul says it not just affects us, not just affects our culture, not just affects our society, not just affects our economics, doesn't just affect our politics, doesn't just affect us, and it just doesn't affect creation, it actually affects God. God is affected by our sin. God is hurt by our sin. God is wounded by our sin. God is offended by our sin. And it leads to God distancing himself from humanity. The the relationship between human beings is broken, fractured, not just between ourselves, and indeed with our very selves. It's not just broken with creation, but actually it's broken with the one who made us. It's broken with the very one who, in the words of Amy's prayers for Nikolai, knew us before we were born. And yet that relationship is broken and fractured because of sin. And it leads to what the Bible describes as God's wrath. Now again, if we're honest, this isn't a popular idea. You don't hear many sermons, many talks in today's church about God's wrath. I remember I was... um, mentored for a while by a former minister of Charlotte Chapel, Alan Redpath. Uh, He actually preached at our wedding. Uh, Alan was in his 80s uh, when we got to know each other in the last 18 months of his life. Uh, Irrespective of the length of my sermon, he would always tell me, 10 minutes more and you'd have had them. (laughs) You may be glad that I'm not taking those words to heart this morning. But he used to tell me that just after the Second World War, there would be whole days given over to preaching in the Royal Albert Hall. And he said there would be three speakers, one after the other, who would each speak for an hour on the wrath of God. And the place was packed. Now, that doesn't fit very well with our culture, doesn't fit very well with our society. Six years ago, a new hymn book was being compiled by the Presbyterian Church in America, and they wanted to include the modern hymn in Christ Alone, a hymn that we sing often here at P's and G's. But they wanted to change some of the words. The line that says the wrath of God was satisfied 
they wanted to change to the love of God was magnified. And they wrote to Stuart Townend and the Gettys who wrote the song and said, would it be okay if they changed it? And the reply came back, no. They felt it was more palatable, less angry, less controversial. But there's only one problem. The wrath of God is mentioned 580 times in the Old Testament, and there are over 20 different words used to describe it. It's a reality. Now, the danger is that we transpose and project onto God how we respond as human beings. So when we think of anger, we think of somebody kicking out petulantly on the football field. We think of road rage. We think of that person who, who cuts us up on Lothian Road and we're going to get them. And therefore, when we think about the wrath of God, we think about a God who's going to get us. That's not what's pictured in the Bible. The wrath of God is very different to our anger. The wrath of God is not retributive. It's real and it's personal, but it's not that God's out for revenge. It's not God responding in a fit of pique. It's not, in the words of one of the placards uh, on um, the march last Saturday, in typically British uh, phraseology, where someone proclaimed themselves, I'm really rather cross <laughs> about Brexit. That's not what's being pictured in the Old Testament. But it's God being hurt. It's God being offended. It's God's anger being holy. It's God's anger being just. It's quite a considered response. It's, not a, it's more a state rather than an emotion. And it's a consequence of our actions, of the relationship between God and humanity being broken. It's a break, if you like, in the covenant relationship between God and humanity. And that's why the wrath of God is there. And that's where Paul has reached in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. But then there are two words in verse 21 at the start. But now. But now. And what Paul is signifying is that this is a game changer. Something has happened. The music in the film changes. It's the moment when that, this different score comes in. The keys change. And somehow there's something different. Paul is saying there's drama, there's intervention. Something in time, something in eternity has shifted, and that something is Jesus. And so in verses 21 and 22, he speaks about the source of redemption. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Humanity is sinful, the world is a mess, but now, Paul says, something has happened. Now again, think about who is being written to and think who is writing it. He's writing to a group of people who have spent the whole of their lives trying to earn God's approval, trying to earn God's love, very sincerely through the observance of the Jewish law. He's writing as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. 
Somebody who has spent the whole of his life looking to know how to live life rightly with God. Somebody who's studied the Scriptures, somebody who's read the books, somebody who's done theology for the whole of his life, somebody who knows what we would call the Old Testament by word, every single word. He would know it by rote. And yet he knows that there's a difference between what he's now experienced and what he had before. But now, he says, the righteousness of God has been made known. And how has the righteousness of God been made known? It hasn't been made known by religion. It hasn't been made known by rules. It hasn't been made known by rituals. It's been made known by a person. And that person is Jesus. And Paul, or Saul as he was, had spent the whole of his life searching and seeking and looking and reading and praying and, and, and being religious. And then one day on the road to Damascus, he met the righteousness of God. And everything was different. And he suddenly saw the discrepancy between what he had and now what he was being offered in the person of Jesus. He met the righteousness of God in a person. Not rules, not regulations, not ritual, not religion, but a person. The righteousness of God has been made known, Paul says. In the Old Testament, there's a recurring picture of the idea of redeemer, the choel, the kinsman redeemer who's able to buy back animals, property, and people, and even the nation. It's seen in the book of Ruth where Boaz comes and buys her back. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, God himself is the Redeemer. He frees Israel from first Egypt and then Babylon. He brings them from slavery to freedom. And this phrase again and again is repeated, that God is the Redeemer and achieves it by his mighty hand and an outstretched arm. By his mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And, and the picture is this. What does it mean for God's mighty hand and outstretched arm? It means that God rolls his sleeves up. Elsewhere, it's described as he bared his holy arm. And God rolls his sleeves up and redeems his people and brings them from slavery, Egypt, Babylon, into freedom. He gets... He rolls his sleeves up and gets his hands messy. That's what God does as the Redeemer. That's what God does in the person of Jesus. And his sleeves aren't just rolled up. They have nails put through his wrists. So God is the Redeemer by his mighty hand and outstretched arm. Secondly, as I've said in verse 23, the need for redemption is made clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned, past tense, but we fall short. There's all sorts of tensions going on because we are sanctified. We're being sanctified. We will be sanctified. We are redeemed, we're being redeemed, we will be redeemed. We are justified, we're being justified, we will be justified. And finally, in verses 24 to 25, Paul speaks about the means of redemption. 
And it always comes back to the person of Jesus. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In the Old Testament, indeed in Middle Eastern culture, sacrifice always involved something being given up. Something had to die on an altar for a sacrifice to be made. Sacrifice always involves a cost. Jesus said, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. The price paid is the cross. That's how redemption is achieved. And redemption could be exercised for somebody who had fallen into debt, a piece of land that had fallen out of a family's ownership, the person needed to be brought out of slavery, or indeed for a prisoner of war who could be bought back. You could pay a price and redeem somebody. It's the picture, if you've watched enough Cold War films, Bridge of Spies, for example, where there are two prisoners being, you've seen James Bond films as well where this happens, where, where two prisoners are exchanged. And there's that moment when they get to the middle of the bridge and then they cross over. That's a picture of redemption. Us, we're the prisoner, and Jesus. It's what our communion liturgy describes as a wonderful exchange. As Jesus takes our place and dies the death that we should have died. So that when God the Father looks at you and me, he doesn't see us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees Jesus dying on the cross in our place. It's a beautiful, a wonderful exchange. We've just sung, my soul is purchased by his blood. In a few minutes we'll sing, bought with the precious, precious blood of Christ. You have been bought. You have been purchased. That's the value, that's the worth that God puts upon your life. Whatever other people may say about you, what you may think about yourself, that's the value, that's the worth that God puts upon your life. I wonder if I was to offer Fraser a £10 note. Some of you may have seen this illustration before. Fraser, would you want this £10 note? Yeah. <laughs> he's a student and he's that non-committal. Yeah, I'd be okay. But I'll give you that £10 note for nothing. You still want it? Yeah? You still want it? Yeah? That's how some of us may feel this morning. We feel crumpled. We feel dirty. We feel stamped on. We feel beaten up. May not look it on the outside, but that's how some of us feel on the inside. But the reality is, still worth 10 pounds. 
still the same value, still the same worth. And Fraser still gets to get it. Because it doesn't change. And that's the value and the worth that Jesus places upon your life and upon mine. Not 10 pounds, but in the words of the MasterCard advert, priceless. Because he gave his own life. He died the death that we should have died. But as Tim Keller said, not just that, he also lived the life that we should have lived in order that we get to live his life, and his life lives in us, so that our sins might be forgiven, so that we might be justified, so that we might be redeemed, so that we might get to live life in relationship with God, not just in eternity, but here and now. Eternal life is not for when you die. Eternal life is about here, and now, it's about the redemption of all things. All things. And in the one, words of one Church of England bishop, which bit of all things do we not understand? All things are being redeemed. And we're called to participate in that. But that's the value. That's the worth that God places upon every single human life. And the value and the worth that he places is the life and the death of his only son. He had nothing else to give, but he gave his best in order that you and I might be brought back to God, reconciled to him, justified, sanctified, redeemed, brought back from slavery into freedom. Let's pray.